Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill, features writer for craft and special projects at IndieWire. My guest today is writer-director Paul Schrader, whose new film The Master Gardener forms a sort of loose trilogy with his previous two movies, First Reformed and The Card Counter. They're all movies about a certain kind of existential loner, what Schrader has called man-in-a-room movies. In the case of The Master Gardener, a reformed white supremacist played by Joel Edgerton, who is hiding from his past at a garden estate where he lives a quiet life as a horticulturist. When his boss and sometime lover, played by Sigourney Weaver, asks him to take her grandniece under his wing, it creates complications in the gardener's stripped-down life that challenge the rigorous limitations by which he has attempted to live it. The character of Narvel Roth, played by Edgerton, follows in a direct line from other Schrader protagonists in screenplays like Taxi Driver, American Gigolo, Light Sleeper, and others, and I had a great time talking with Paul about that and a lot of other things at IndieWire Studio. Here's our conversation. Before we get specifically into The Master Gardener, I was curious, I had a question about how your approach to directing has changed, if it has, because it seems to me like you're almost alone among the writer-directors who you came up with, like Walter Hill and De Palma, in the sense that this kind of new, the digital technology and the lower budgets and everything, you've really adapted well to it. I mean, if anything, you don't feel constrained by it. You feel kind of liberated by it. Liberated is the word I would use. Uh, When I first started directing, the shooting schedules were around 40, 45 days. And I've always sort of worked on a smaller palette, you know, the prototype of the European cinema of the 60s, you know, Godard, Bresson, Bergman, you know, they were not, you know, spectacle makers. And that, plus the fact that we didn't have any uh, subsidies in this country, uh, made it harder to fight my way along. And then the, the digital happened, and the shooting schedules dropped enormously. Now, the last three films I made in about 20 days each. The next one is scheduled for 21. I'm shooting more, quote-unquote, film, even though we don't shoot film. I'm, I'm shooting more images and getting more images in, in the chip, we used to say film in the camera, in 20 days than I did in 40. So, and also then I have learned when to move on, that uh, when you're working on a tight budget, a lower budget, and you're the writer as well as the director, you can start to smell a scene that's going to get cut. If you can spot one coming, in the writing stage, the rewriting, even in the prep, just cut it right then and there. You know, you will make some mistakes, but... Also, I dropped my length of a script. The new script is now, I'm going to do the summers. Uh, I just bumped it up to 79, 80 pages. But that's sort of where they live now in the early 80s. They used to, when I started out, they were 115. And then, and then that 115 script, there would be four or five scenes that got cut. And I had to shoot them. Well, if I cut them before I shoot... It gives me three more days. And I first started working this way on Affliction because I asked the editor to check up. There were no cut scenes in that film. And I said, how many setups were not used? One through 13 setups weren't used. That is lean. (laughs) That is really cutting to the camera. So, uh, but that's not something I would recommend to somebody starting out unless they're doing a storyboarded film which is essentially like an anime, then you know, you, then you can do it. But if you're dealing with real people and 
real situations, you, you got to leave room for error. And you don't storyboard, right? You've never done that kind of thing. So in terms of planning and blocking your shots, are you the kind of director who comes in and tells the actor, you know, stand here, whatever? Do you prefer to see what the actor brings you and then kind of plan your compositions around well, you, you have rehearsal where you have a, um, a raw space. And you know what the set's going to look like. And so you have some folding chairs and tables, sofa, whatever, counter. So you kind of mimic the bar, the restaurant, the living room, wherever. And you start to feel your way through it in the rehearsal process. So that by the time you come to shoot, you and the DP have already come up with a shot list. You've free blocked it. We're going to start here. You know, we're doing a master here till here. Then we're going to do a dolly reverse master, you know. And, you know, everything we do in the front master, we don't have to cover in the reverse master. And so that gives you a very economical way of working. Then, of course, you get onto the set, and it's always different. The lighting isn't quite as flattering as you thought it would be. The blocking isn't quite right, you know. And then you do restaging a little bit. But... Um, I usually follow the template pretty much. And occasionally, I was doing, I think, thing in Light Sleeper where we were going to go in and we are doing the master and then over the singles. We did the master, and we had to make a, a move to another location. And I said to the AD, I said, let's walk away. I just, look, I, I just looked at that master on the, uh, on the video. It's great. It's a great fucking master. Who would want to put a splice in that master? Not me. So we, I said, let's walk away. Well, of course, you didn't ruin you regret that. <laughs> you know, because now the, the master, whatever it runs, you know, two minutes, 15 seconds, you're stuck with it unless you want to do a jump cut. But, you know, that's, you learn to um, make those kind of adjustments. And are things like knowing when you want to move the camera or how you want to compose the frame, are those just intuitive decisions for you, or do you have kind of intellectual strategies going in? You certainly have an intellectual strategy going in. And you know, some films you try never to stop. Some are rails, some you know, more handhelds, steady cam. When I made First Reformed, one of my dictates was uh, that I was going to do a lock-off film. Uh, no camera moves, all planometric compositions. And then one day we were at the house, and I was sitting there, and I said to the Alex, the DP, I said, you know, do we have any rail in the truck? I said, yeah, of course we got rail. I said, let's lay some rail. And I said, when he pulls into the frame, I'm going to go back on the rails, let him out, and then let him come back in. And it was totally opposite of what we've been doing. And he said, well, why are you going to do that? Why are you going to do that? I said, I don't know. I just sat here and I realized people may forget that we have the rules. We have to break a rule to remind them that there are rules. And I just saw this shot. I thought, this would be a great, great place to break the rule. Then we went back to the rules. <laughs> but that, that just occurred, you know, as you're looking at it, eyeballing it. What were the rules going into Master Gardener? What were your guiding principles for how you wanted to approach it? I ended up moving the camera more than I wanted to just because of the the nature of the environment. You know, you're dealing with gardens and people walking around. And also I did a widescreen. 
whereas first reform was one three three. So that automatically changes your sense of camera movement, you know. And like in first reformed, in order to make it sparse and simple, I, I, I omitted a number of things. Like, like I mentioned before, planometric composition, no low angles, no high angles, frontal composition, center punching, no overs, because an over is an implicit judgment. One person is in focus, the other person isn't. Therefore, there's a priority that's established. Uh, whereas a 50-50, there's no priority. And they didn't do overs in the silent era. Uh, if you look back at those films, when they were shot one, three, three, they didn't need overs. It's when the screen kept getting wider that he suddenly had a hole. So what do we put in the hole? Well, let's put in somebody's shoulder, or let's do a dirty over with somebody's ear. And then overs became part of the standard language of everything, everything you see on TV. You know, master two-shot, over, over, single, single. Um, so then uh, I uh, so I didn't do overs on first reform, but I went back and did overs on this one. And in a way, first reformed sort of cured me of my desire to do a really perversely aesthetic film in the, in the Bresonian style. But uh, also, when you work on the lower budgets, you don't have the time and money, you don't have the big toys. You know, if you have, there's one techno crane shot in Card Counter, uh, and you, you have to plan on that day. You know, you get, you get one techno crane day. Uh, it used to be you would get two to three Steadicam days. Now, the, the, the rigs are such that uh, the whole film is essentially Steadicam now. And, uh, and you get certain days for extras, and you have to, you can't fool around, you know, 40 extras. and and pay them and not work them. But, you know, that's just the, the trade-off of how to do not a big film, but a quality film with an indie budget. Well, it's, yeah, it's interesting to me, you know, watching these recent films of yours and revisiting your kind of, you know, the loner man that goes back to Taxi Driver. And, you know, I think about the first half of your career, you would revisit this guy maybe every five or 10 years. It's like, you know, Light Sleeper was 10 years or so after American Gigolo and The Walker was more than 10 years, I think, after Light Sleeper. Now you've been, your last three films, you know, very quickly on top of each other, you're revisiting that kind of character. What does that figure, what purpose does that figure serve for you at this point in your life as a storyteller? Why do you keep going back to him? And what do you, what do you like about playing these variations on him. Well, it all has to do with getting older, because as you get older, the metaphors change. That lonely, angry kid in the taxi cab is now a former proud boy or a former torturer, you know, and, um, and you find the metaphor sort of works. Uh, you know, it all comes down to, I said this before, but I'll repeat it. When I lived here in Los Angeles on a morning in uh, March 1969, I went over, I was reviewing for the LA Free Press, and I went over to uh, the Limley Theater and uh, saw a pickpocket, 75 minute long. And um, 
I was a film student right over there at UCLA. I lived with students who uh, were making film. They were making a film for Roger Corman, a biker film. And I really looked out at that. I was, you know, I, that was kind of trash. And I, I was very much a highbrow and elitist. And in this 75 minutes, two things occurred to me. And upon that, a career pivoted. And the first thing that occurred to me is I didn't think there was a connection between my sacred background, that is my training in the church, and my profane presence, my uh, uh, grad school at UCLA. There's nothing, there's nothing connects them. And I saw this movie and I said, there is a connection. But it's not a connection of content, it's a connection of style. There's a way to do things that represents the holy. And they do it in church cathedrals, they do it in choral music, and they do it in Zen gardens, and they do it in movies. And out of that connection, out of that insight, that book, Transcendental Style, came out a couple of years later. The second insight I had in that 75 minutes was I was looking at this film, and now here's a guy, he writes in a journal, goes out, steals some stuff, writes in a journal. Cops come and visit him, talks to the cops, writes in the journal, visits his neighbor, writes in the journal. That's the movie. And I thought, gee, I, I, I could write a movie like that. And that's what Taxi Driver. Two years later, three years later, I wrote Taxi Driver. And it's that movie. And so that pickpocket was the music was the song that was playing when I entered the party. And so you, you keep going back to it. And the thing about going back to it is you have to rejuvenate it. Uh, um, the film I'm doing next in, is not part of this character. Uh, critics like trilogies. I don't, they don't care much for tetralogies. And, uh, but it's a, a film about death. It's my Ivan Illich. It's part of a progress, you know, and... I, I don't mean to uh, denigrate Steve Spielberg, friend and a great director, but just the difference between us. I'm just a year older, but in his later years, he made his film about how a filmmaker is born. And in my later years, I'm making a film about how a filmmaker dies. <laughs> Well, bringing up transcendental style in film, you know, I remember years ago reading a quote from you where you said something to the effect that filmmaking is an act of birth and film criticism is an act of autopsy and they're kind of diametrically opposed. But it does feel to me like in some of your recent films, especially First Reformed, there is a link between your filmmaking and what you've written about film. I mean, do you still feel that they're opposed or have they sort of synthesized for you? That, I think that's more of an exception. Uh, I was a big fan of Ida, a film by Pavel Pavlovsky. And uh, I just reissued the book, expanded it, and I gave him a copy. And he wrote me, and he said, you did exactly what you said you were going to do, didn't you? I said, yeah, I think in that, that case I did. And I, I said, I'm going to do this thing this way. I, I don't, but that has to be the right it has to feel right. Otherwise, it's just perverse adherence to a preset rule, you know, which may not apply in this case. The next one I'm going to do more in the style of uh, Mishima as a kaleidoscope, uh, a mosaic. Different formats, different color patterns, different design patterns. 
Whereas these last three have been really quite bare bones. Yeah. You know, if there's a chair in the room, it's, it's fully furnished. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they're very, they're very contemplative movies. And it was interesting reading your new introduction to Transcendental Style and thinking about these movies, because I feel like there's some ways in which you're applying these things you're talking about, but your films are not, they're not slow cinema. I mean, they're very tightly uh, constructed and paced, actually. But they are, they do play with time in the way slow cinema does. You know, that the whole the Delusian thing, just to give you an example, a um, rule of editing is someone leaves a room, you lay the splice just before the door latches. That's a good cut. And pickpocket, Brisson let the door close, go one, two, and cut. Now what's happening? Nothing. Nothing's happening. He's just fucking with you. He's he's interrupting your sense of time. You've seen movies and time. It jumps ahead when the door closes. But now it doesn't jump ahead. Now is that slow cinema? No, that's not slow cinema, but it's not regular cinema either. And what happens if I hold there for ten seconds? How long can I hold there before people get up and leave? And uh, certainly so slow cinema has tested the patience of <laughs> many a critic saying, you know, Bella Tyre thinks he can make me leave, but I'm not going to leave. <laughs> <laughs> that, that intro that you wrote for Transcendental Style, um, you know, it was really fantastic. And it made me think, you know, you still – you could be still a full-time critic if you wanted to be. I mean, you write so well about cinema and so insightfully. But do you... I, I, I now write for Facebook. <laughs> well, and how, well, how's that, you know, how has that changed your life, being a writer, writing on Facebook? Well, it's just a, it's a, a, a place to scratch that periodic itch to pontificate or comment. You know, you, you have to be careful because I still live off the goodwill of my fellow filmmakers and actors, so you can say something. There are things you cannot say as a filmmaker that you can say as a critic. If I said, you know, Dustin's best performance in 10 years, Dustin would not take that as a compliment. He would say, what does he think I've been doing the last 10 years? And then I would go to Dustin with a script and say, gee, I really would like to work with you. And he would say, yeah, well, yeah, like I've been working the last 10 years, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> so you do have to be, uh, you can't uh, say anything because you never, never know. You turn on a dime and who's goodwill you're going to want and who's somebody who I offended Vincent Gallo and that's one person I do not regret offending <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> other people um, have been doing this new film again with Richard Gere and I was thinking of hiring Michelle Yeoh and Richard said she can't do it she won't work she won't work with me and I said why she'll never get financed in China again and we contacted her reps and uh, said Richard says you can't do this film because the reps wanted her to do it because um, you couldn't work again in China. And the representative came back and said, she's decided to concentrate on the film in October. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, Richard was right. <laughs> There's also this component to Facebook of, you know, being a provocateur. And you've, as a filmmaker, you've well, either intentionally or unintentionally, you've sometimes sort of fallen into these firestorms and you're thinking about writing Last Temptation of Christ and you write these characters, you know, Travis Bickle, uh, and even Master Gardener dealing with a sort of former... It's not that unintentionally. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, you got to stir the pot. And uh, finally, we're getting back to Master Gardener. But, you know, uh, there's a number of hot buttons on the console. And the first one I started out with was May-December. Now, May-December used to be a normal thing. Now it's seen as somehow incorrect. Another hot button in a racial May-December. And then the whole thing about one woman old enough to be his mother, the other one young enough to be his daughter. And I was starting to get some feedback. Uh, when, you know, you're trying to raise a bunch of you know, people are saying, you know, well, you know, maybe you can tone this down and maybe she should be a little older, you know. I said, I don't know. I said, I, I think what I'll do is I, uh, I'll, I'll, rather than de-thorning it, taking a thorn out, I'll add a thorn. Because at that time, the character was an ex-hitman who was in the witness protection program. I said, I'll make him an ex-white nationalist. That way, they'll be getting so fucked up about that, they won't have time to worry about May-December. And then as we got into the casting, I went and I said to the producer, you know, if we really want to get the not thinking about May-December and not thinking about the white nationalists, let's cast Kevin Spacey. Then they'll really be fucked up. <laughs> Their heads will be spinning so long they, they won't stop. <laughs> so, you know, that goes to your point of uh, how much of it is unintentional. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I could have gotten that film with Kevin made. No, but that is an interesting point because I actually, until you brought it up, I didn't really think about the May-December romances as anything. I mean, a little bit I did. I thought about him and the you know the niece character being younger, but it did kind of go right by me. So you... Uh, yeah, well, it's Lolita and it's... Um, uh, baby doll, uh, just death in Venice, you know, and uh, it's kind of creepy. Uh, and, and I, don't, I don't think it's creepy in Master Gardener, but certainly creepy in uh, in baby doll and the lead of Master Venice. Yeah, no, I mean, I actually found in Master Gardener, I was really struck by the kind of you know empathy for this guy. Well, for everybody, I mean, that's you know, I think it's a movie where you. You're not really. It doesn't feel like you as a filmmaker, even though, even though I think you know, as a director, you're a moralist and you've described yourself that way. You, it doesn't feel like you're sitting in judgment of these people, really. No, 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 no. I mean, and, and you shouldn't. You know, the secret of character and the secret of storytelling is contradiction. You know, I, I loved her so much, I hit her. I woke up and I loved her even more, so I hit her again. You know, where does the love and violence parse? And do you find that actors like playing those contradictions, or is it something that you have to have a lot of conversations with them about? I think they do if they feel there's a steady hand on the helm. If they feel like people are, are winging it and don't know quite what they're doing, and one day the instructions are this way and the next day the instructions are that way, and then the actors get very, very nervous. Uh, but one... Uh, thing I'm fond of saying to actors is that, you know, I know you conceive of yourself like a lone pine on a windy plain, and emotion and plot and conflict are buffeting you, and you are managing to stand upright. That's what you're being paid for. You're an actor. I said, I want you to get that idea out of your head. Imagine that you are instead a big rocky promontory, and the waves are pounding at you. They're coming at you, 
but then they go away, and you're still there. And you don't have to fight back against them at all. All you have to do is hold your ground, and they will go away. They're called day players, and they're called plot devices, and they're called this and that, and they will go away if you remain steadfast. And once an actor gets into that mindset that he is as protected as that rocky promontory, then he doesn't have to earn his keep by flailing about in the wind to show his emotions. Talking about the Narvel character in this movie being a proud boy kind of just brought me, just reminded me of something I read once about Rolling Thunder and how Rolling Thunder originally that character was supposed to be much more of an explicit racist and they kind of toned it down. And you said something to the effect of, you know, that was like removing the racism from that movie was like giving Travis Bickle a dog. But that movie really giving Giving Rocky a goldfish. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I'm just kind of curious. Rolling Thunder has its reputation has kind of increased in recent years, primarily because like Tarantino loves it. Like Tarantino. I'm just curious if you've ever reevaluated or. Well, I mean, now, Quentin, about a month ago, he was making a film that has something to do with filmmaking in the 70s. The great character, the Pauline characters, other things. And and part of this, he's going to use clips from movies from the 70s, but he's also going to remake movies from the 70s. And he asked me, can I redo the ending of Rolling Thunder? And I said, yeah, go for it, you know. I'd love to, I'd love to see you redo the ending of Rolling Thunder. <laughs> you know, who knows whether he actually will or not, but uh, it was something that was tickling his imagination in a very Tarantino-esque way. Well, I'm just curious, do you ever, you know, you're such a, self-conscious director. I mean, there's some directors who either don't really, they're not very self-analytical or they pretend they're not. And you are, and I'm curious if you ever kind of revisit or, or reconsider your own movies. Because for example, I know that you, you've been critical of hardcore, which I actually think is a great movie. I think you're wrong about hardcore. I think it's a better movie than you give it credit for being. Well, it, it has come back into vogue primarily because of nostalgia for pornography. <laughs> For the old Santa Monica Boulevard, where it used to look, where there was a red zone and you could go to peep shows and you had to go in and buy a magazine and you had to make sure nobody saw you go in the store. Well, that's all gone now, but it, it, people who wax nostalgic about the <laughs> about the ancient days of pornography like hardcore. Well, I guess to, to finish up, I had one last question about Master Gardener, which is, uh, I'm curious, you know, the movie casts such a spell right from the beginning, and part of that is that beautiful credit sequence you have. Part of it, I think, is the quietness of the movie, and I'm curious how you approach sound design on a movie that's meant to be kind of quiet and contemplative. Well, one of the things in the use of the sparseness and displacement is, you know, sometimes no music. Now, in first of all, there was no music until the very, very end. And then, you, then also you're just dealing with sounds. You're dealing with crickets and wind and key latches. You know, it can always, you know, the key is too loud. Of course it's too loud. You know, you're, you're, you know, you're fucking with the viewer. You're, you're making the key too loud. You, that wasn't a mistake. That was a choice, you know. And so that sound design is very much part of music design. Well, it's a great movie, Paul, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about it. You too, Jim. Thank you. <laughs>